Psalm 114, when Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. The sea saw it and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the little hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you fled? O Jordan, that you turned back? O mountains, that you skipped like rams? O little hills like lambs? Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of waters. And our sermon text today is uh, Exodus 23. It's verses 1 through 9. This is entitled, Justice, Justice, You Shall Do. Verse 1, you shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. You shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. Keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. Also, you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Now, I will say that other than uh, verse 5, it's a pretty easy sermon to follow. Verse 5 may have some things that will confuse you a bit. Don't worry about that. In the Gentile-led New Testament church, the words of Paul are our marching orders. They're where we get our doctrine, and they are where we need to go in order to live rightly in this dispensation of time, the dispensation of grace. That doesn't mean not to read the whole Bible and to apply it accordingly, but Paul's letters set the doctrine for the church age. All right? The utter confusion of people concerning simple precepts like salvation by grace through faith without adding in works, eternal salvation, and the law being set aside in Christ are almost foreign to the multitudes who sit in churches around the world. By understanding that Paul is where our doctrine comes from, we can then rightly know how to conduct ourselves at the point we are at now in redemptive history. Having said that, this doesn't mean that we can't learn anything from the law. Rather, the law shows us many wonderful precepts that we probably should follow. Being in Christ means that we won't be judged for not doing these things. Yes, the law is set aside in Christ, but they are still things which hold value for society and for our interactions with others. Today's verses are literally filled with common sense items which, if adhered to, would alleviate many of the problems of our society. Unfortunately, these precepts are all but ignored, especially by the people who need them most. The land is full of folks who either practice those things that they shouldn't or who fail to practice those things that they should. These are matters of social and societal justice that we should do simply because they are the right thing to do. It is as if we have a debt to pay when confronted with them. So let's pay what we owe for the sake of love. Our text verse comes from Romans 13. It's the eighth verse. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. 
as we go through these nine verses today, just ask yourself, is doing this thing that the people are being asked to do or not to do loving? If it is, then do it. Not for the sake of meriting God's favor through deeds of the law, but for the sake of simply being the loving person that Christ has called you to be. This is the kind of common sense approach to the Bible that we need to hold fast to. If we say the law says and then insist that everyone either does that or else, we're being legalistic about a matter which has already been settled in Christ. But if we say to ourselves, this really is the right thing to do, and then we don't do it, who are we hurting? The answer is pretty much everyone who is involved in the matter, including ourselves and our relationship with the Lord. Let us act responsibly in our dealings with others. From time to time, repeat the words, justice, justice, you shall do. I've done this for years now, and I found that when I come to a situation which is tempting to me to do wrong in, those words pop right into my head, and it prevents me from going any further. God is the God of justice. Being just is his very nature. And so let's always attempt to imitate our glorious creator by acting like him. To define what it means to be just, we need to read his word, where we find his justice on prominent display. Yes, it's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is refrain from evil. It's verses one through three. As I showed last week, and I'll remind you now, there's a chiasm which spans the verses from 22 verse 28 through 23 verse 13. In chapter 22, I said this last week, I want to repeat it. Charles Ellicott stated this, the remainder of the chapter from chapter 22 contains laws which it is impossible to bring under any general head or heads, and which can therefore only be regarded as miscellaneous. Moses may have recorded them in the order in which they were delivered to him, or have committed them to writing as they afterwards occurred to his memory. At the beginning of his notes for chapter 23, he continues with this same type of thinking. He says this, from Exodus 23 verse 1 to Exodus 23 verse 9, which is all of our verses today, no kind of sequence in the laws can be traced. From Exodus 23.10 through the first clause of Exodus 23.19, there is, on the contrary, a certain connection, since the laws enunciated are concerned with ceremonial observance. This is not meant as a personal slam on Charles Ellicott, but it does show that as God's word is studied and built upon by scholars throughout the ages, we continuously get a better and a clearer picture of the perfection of God's word. Rather than being miscellaneous and with no sequence which can be traced, the chiasm shows beauty and it shows harmony within these verses. They also show definite intent. Here is the chiasm explained once again this week as we looked at it last week. You have the first section, which is section A at the top and the bottom. It says there, you shall not revile God. And at the bottom, it says no mention of the name of other gods. So it's tied, the two thoughts are tied together. You come to B. Oxen and sheep shall be with its mother seven days, be at the bottom, rest on the seventh day, so ox and donkey may rest. Then you have C, you shall not eat meat torn by beasts in the field, C at the bottom, and what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. D, you shall not circulate a false report, D at the bottom, keep yourself far from a false matter. E, not to show partiality to a poor man in his dispute, 
E, not to pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. And then the anchor verses, an enemy's ox or donkey going astray, help him. A, doc, a donkey of one who hates your brother under its burden, help him. And so you can see that there is a beautiful symmetry to these verses, which Charles Ellicott had missed. And someday we'll find out more of these type of things that people, you know, as they're reading the Bible, God illuminates them to him. And so understanding that these words are purposeful and even marvelously arranged, we begin with chapter 23 at verse 1. You shall not circulate a false report. In these words is found an expansion of the ninth commandment, which said, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The words here are, lo tisah shema shav, no spread a report false. The word tisah means to lift up. And so this would literally be translated as not take up. In essence, we get the mental picture of picking up a false report and putting it in our mouth. The Greek translation of this passage says, you shall not receive a false report. Thus, it indicates the incoming action rather than an outgoing one. In all, this one word seems to be a favorite of translators to take the opportunity for inventing new ways of explaining it. Of the translations that I referred to, the following words were selected. Spread, pass along, raise, bear, give, utter, admit, publish, take up, receive, accept, and lift up. This shows the difficulty of deciding if the intent is to receive a false report or to put one out. However, Adam Clark notes this. The inventor and receiver of false and slanderous reports are almost equally criminal. The, world, the word seems to refer to either, and our translators have very properly retained both senses, putting raise in the text and receive in the margin. In other words, translators understand this word to indicate both receiving and putting out. And so the New King James Version ingeniously uses the word circulate to show that it can be something coming in as well as something going out. If one thinks of a mail processing machine, it receives in and it sends out. This seems to be the full intent of what is prohibited concerning this false report. The word for false or shav here is used for just the third time in the Bible. The first two are in the giving of the third commandment. There it said this, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, that word shav, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain, shav again. We are not to hold the name of the Lord our God in vain, and we are not to vainly or falsely receive and disseminate a false report. This word shav comes from another word which carries the sense of desolating, and this is exactly what results from allowing false reports to continue. Doing so can result in the most miserable of circumstances for the one who is falsely reported. When King Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard, his wife Jezebel had two scoundrels falsely charge him with blasphemy. In doing so, he was taken out and he was stoned to death. Adam Clark gives a good summary of what it would be like if people didn't carry on with such false reports. Here's what he says. Were there no publishers of slander and calumny, there would be no receivers. And were there none to receive them, there would be none to raise them. And were there no raisers, receivers, nor propagators of calumny, lies, etc., society would be in peace. But in the world we live in, this is one of the most common of offenses. And this is especially so today in the world with the internet. People find every single reason possible to pass on lies, knowing that they are lies, for the simple purpose of destroying others. 
Internet trolls spend all of their time destroying others for no good reason at all. But the Bible forbids this. Not only are we to not make up falsities, but we are to refrain from allowing them to pass through us. This idea of truthfulness in this manner is explained, uh, expanded on in Leviticus chapter 19. It says this, You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Penalties for such behavior are found in Scripture. One of particular note is given to protect the rights and the name of a woman who has been so maligned. Let me read this to you. It's a little long, but it's very interesting. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and detests her and charges her with shameful conduct and brings a bad name on her and says, I took this woman and when I came to her, I found she was not a virgin, then the father and the mother of the young woman shall take and bring out the evidence of the young woman's virginity to the elders of the city at the gate. And the young woman's father shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man as wife, and he detests her. Now he has charged her with shameful conduct, saying, I found your daughter was not a virgin. And yet these are the evidences of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloth before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take that man and punish him. And they shall find him 100 shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman because he has brought a bad name on a virgin of Israel and she shall be his wife. He cannot divorce her all of his days. In agreement with this first clause in verse one are the continued words found in the second clause. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. Both clauses complement each other in intent. To put one hands with means to join hands with. In other words, it's like making a pact where a person puts out his hand and the others put theirs together in agreement, like in a football huddle. Some translations say cooperate or some say join forces with. Israel was told to not make such alliances with the wicked who would be untruthful in their testimony. Obviously, what occurred in poor Naboth's case, that guy that got stoned to death, shows the severity of this. He lost his life simply because two people falsely accused him. The Proverbs deals with this issue as well. There it shows that by making such an alliance, punishment is what will be expected. Proverbs eleven twenty one: Though they join forces, the wicked shall not go unpunished, but the po- posterity of the righteous will be delivered. As the Lord is the ultimate judge of all such things, even if a false witness isn't caught in this life, he will receive his just punishment in the next. For the Christian who acts in this way, there will certainly be a loss of rewards at the Bema Seat of Christ. In both clauses of this verse, of this chapter, the ninth commandment goes from the key point of the law to practical applications of it. Thus, the Lord is further defining the intent of those majestic words, Lota'ane bere'acha ed shaker, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Verse 2, you shall not follow a crowd to do evil. This clause of verse 2 can be taken in one of two ways. Both are sound and both apply as much today in principle as they did when they were penned. To follow a crowd to do evil means to join in with a crowd who is bent on evil because of their popular voice. The Latin phrase, vox populi vox dei, or the voice of the people, is the voice of God is often held to as being a reasonable way of handling disputed matters. However, it is wholly inappropriate as a way of evaluating moral issues. This concept translates into the modern thinking of where morals come from. 
Apart from the truth, which is that morals are derived from God, some believe that they are based on government standards. This is where we are today with the progressive Democrat movement. The government sets the morals. And we have seen that completely in the past eight years where the government has said homosexuality is okay. They set the morals regardless of whether it's moral or not. And they say the LGBT is okay. And then they get into another one and another one. The progressive Democrat movement of the United States believes that government sets morals. That is where it stems from, according to their thinking. Some say they stem from personal mores. This would reflect the views of humanists who have decided that personal feelings dictate morals. Some say that morals come from social convention, and thus each society develops its morals as they develop and grow. Others hold steadfastly to the fact that morals are derived from herd instinct. This would be like people in the Baltimore and the Ferguson riots and in the Occupy movement. They believe that the herd is the proper moral initiator and the one to continue refining their morals. This is the idea of this verse right here. According to this law, where the crowd goes, if it is bent on evil, it is not to be followed. There are examples of the faithful in scripture who refused to go along with the herd. Job said this, have I feared the crowd or contempt of the masses so that I kept quiet and stayed indoors? In other words, I didn't go along with the crowd. Jesus taught specifically on this precept when he said these words for us to consider. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. It's the herd instinct, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Joseph Benson most eloquently states his view on this. He says, we must inquire what we ought to do, not what the most do, because we must be judged by our master, not to our fellow servants. And it is too great a compliment to be willing to go to hell for company. What we are looking at in this verse is perfectly seen in the modern church and the homosexual movement. It is exactly what this precept of the law demands to stay away from. The crowd has gone down a unholy and an immoral path and the multitudes of sheeple have followed along with it as well. They have failed to realize that what is legal is not necessarily moral. They have followed the crowd and they are headed to destruction and they're taking all kinds of souls with them because we do not set morality. Morality comes from God. As I said though, there is another view of these words which is equally proper. Instead of saying you shall not follow a crowd to do evil, some scholars translate this word rabim as great men instead of crowd. It can mean either, and this is a most common thing for people to do. We see political leaders, rich people, or famous folks who are bent on pursuing evil. Our current president is the epitome of this, and yet people put their hand in with him to do evil, possibly beyond anything that even Hitler or Stalin could have imagined, and they follow along with him. We are asked to not follow Arnold Schwarzenegger into the global warming debate just because he's wealthy and he's popular. We are to refrain from acting in agreement with the devil and his followers simply because they are supposedly great because of their position, their possessions, or their prominence. Job understood this. He said, great men are not always wise, nor do the aged always understand justice. Verse two continues, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. 
Again, the word rabim is used in these words, and so it can mean either turning aside after many, or it can mean turning aside after great men. Either way, the idea is that justice is to be given by each of us in a dispute. Justice, justice, you shall do. We are not to turn from the truth, whether it is the popular thing to do or whether it will benefit us because a great man has already falsely testified and we could curry his favor or be saved from the power of his wrath. And that's where we are with the government right now. We will follow a great man simply because we're scared of the penalty that he may levy upon us. Or we may follow a great man simply because we can curry his favor and get moved into a position of prominence. And Christians are going to have to make more and more and more of a stand on this precept in the days to come. I assure you, the government is not our friend. The pulpit commentary even aligns these words with a panel of judges by saying this, if thou art one of the judges, thou shalt not simply go with the majority if it is bent on injustice, but form thy own opinion and adhere to it. We saw that with our Chief Justice Roberts a couple years ago, didn't we? Unfortunately, the judgment of judges has increasingly been found lacking in this precept. The reason for it is, of course, the declining morals of our leaders. The left has done everything possible to destroy the moral underpinnings of our society, even to the point where the words of Job chapter 9 ring true. Here's what he said. When a land falls into the hands of the wicked, he blindfolds its judges. The lessons of justice found within the law are given for the good of society and the benefit of all within it. This goes from the greatest to the poorest of the land and all in between. Verse 3, you shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. This verse might seem a bit of a shock to us considering the deference that the Bible shows to the poor and to the needy as well as to the widow and the orphan. However, what is right is right. And justice is to be blind to the status of the individual. A poor man is never to be given a favorable but unrighteous decision simply because he is poor. As a brain squiggle for you, the word poor here is the adjective dal. It is the first time it's seen in scripture and it comes from the verb dalal, which means to dangle. By implication, then, a poor person dangles. He's lean, he's needy, and he's weak. Hebrew is vibrant and it's active in how it portrays such things. Secondly, the word for partiality is hadar. This is the first of only seven times that it's going to be used in the Bible. It essentially means honor. It is mostly used in man's relationship with man, as it is in this verse right here. In a comparable passage, we read this using the same word. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor, that word, the person of the mighty. In righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. Unfortunately, our nation is diverted from this sound precept. We began to defer in this exact manner when laws started to be passed simply because of the color of one's skin or their sex or their economic status. Each of these carries the same idea as the simple precept of showing partiality to a poor man. Justice is to be blind in its decisions, and no judgment is to be considered for any other reason than the matter at hand. Some European countries provide greater benefits for illegal immigrants than they do for their own citizens. Such unjust laws can only further degrade the morals of a society. They can in no way make things better. The Bible lays a framework for man to consider and to learn from. However, we as a species would rather 
cast off the proper way from her shoulder and carry around the very heavy burden of disobedience through injustice and all of the ills which result from it. In each of these first three precepts, we have been asked to refrain from evil. God wants justice served and his people to be free from the harms that come from engaging in that which is unjust. Justice, justice, you shall do. Treat others as you would have them treat you. This is the rule to you that I speak. Give to them when they are needy, this you shall do, and strengthen them when you see that they are weak. If one is lacking bread, would you hold back from them food? If they are cold, give them a coat, show them compassion. Don't withhold being polite and to them act so rude. Don't hand out your help as if by ration. If you do these things, you will be living right. I will see what you have done and reward you. Nothing you do is hidden from my sight. And so justice, justice, yes, justice, you shall do. Our second thought today is the law of the donkey, verses four and five. Verse four, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. This verse and its application meet with a wide range of interpretations. However, if taken at face value, it is rather clear. The word oyev or enemy is not further specified. This word is used to simply mean an enemy. The pulpit commentary, I believe, unnecessarily finds a distinction here in who the enemy is that's being referred to. Here's what they say. A private enemy is here spoken of, not a public one, as in Deuteronomy 23, verse 6. The passage in Deuteronomy 23 says this, An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. You shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all your days forever. That's what the pulpit commentary was referring to, that last verse. It could be that the commentators were making their decision concerning public and private enemies based on the comparable passage to this verse from Deuteronomy 22, which says this, you shall not see your, neighbor, your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and hide yourself from them. You shall certainly bring them back to your brother. And if your brother is not near you, or if you do not know him, then you shall bring it to your own house and it shall remain with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. You shall do the same with his donkey. And so shall you do with his garment. With any lost thing of your brother's, which he has lost and you have found, you shall likewise do. You must not hide yourself. In these verses, it speaks of the brother's ox. Thus, even if the brother, meaning a fellow Israelite, is an enemy, you are to make sure that he gets his animal back. However, if it belongs to a Moabite or an Ammonite, they're not under any obligation to return it. Other scholars have come to this exact same conclusion. However, it should be noted that there is no distinction between a public and a private enemy given in the verse that we're looking at now. Eventually, both Ammonites and Moabites entered into the people of Israel. Jesus descends from both people groups. All that is noted concerning the wayward beast is that if a person sees it going astray, and even if it belongs to an enemy, Hashev Tishavenu, returning, you shall return it to that person. This verse, then, is a germ of wisdom 
for us to understand Jesus' words of Matthew chapter 5. Here's what he says. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. If you notice Jesus' words, he said, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The law never says this. It only says you shall love your neighbor. Nowhere in the law does it say to hate one's enemy. Rabbinic tradition concluded that if one was instructed to love their neighbors, then obviously they were to hate their enemies. However, this conclusion is not obvious. Rather, it is contradictory to the words of the verse that we're looking at right here. The person may, in fact, be your enemy, but you were to hate him enough to deprive him of his ox or his donkey. Instead, you were to return it to him. Active kindness to one's enemy may have been repugnant to the interpreters of the law, but it is the only possible explanation for this verse as context demands. The spirit and intent of the law was so far removed from urging personal revenge or harm to one's enemies that it wouldn't even allow neglecting a wayward beast, which would then cause that person to suffer personal loss. As the Geneva Bible succinctly states, if we are bound, speaking of Jesus' words, to do good to our enemy's beast, how much more to our enemy himself? Verse 5, if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. The sense of this verse is plain and clear regardless of the difficult nature of the Hebrew words and how they are ultimately translated. And the reason I say this is that the word translated here as help is azav and it is used three times in this verse. It means leave or forsake. Because of this, it takes thought to understand what is being said. But fortunately, there is also a comparable passage in Deuteronomy which helps explain what is being ordered. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 22. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fall down along the road and hide yourself from them. You shall surely help him lift them up again. Again, like before, the verse in Deuteronomy is referring to your brother's donkey instead of the donkey of an enemy. But the principle remains the same. However, because an enemy is being referred to, Kyle explains the odd usage of the Hebrew. Here's how Kyle says it. The peculiar turn given to the expression, thou shalt cease from leaving, is chosen because the ordinary course, which the natural man adopts, is to leave an enemy to take care of his own affairs without troubling about it, either him or his difficulties. Such conduct as this, the Israelite was to give up if he ever found his enemy in need of help. For this reason, the word azav is first translated as leave in the sense of not leaving it in a helpless condition. Immediately after that, it then says azov ta azov, leaving, you shall leave it, but in the sense of relieving it from its burden. It's a sort of pun on the word to get re the reader to understand that even though the conduct might seem contrary to normal reason, the Lord sees nothing contrary in the principle. The reason why this is important is because 
This is not the animal that is being focused on here, but the relationship. Paul says this in the New Testament. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it ox that God is concerned about? Or does it say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be a partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is is it a great thing that we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Paul says that the law's concrete example of muzzling an ox is given as a spiritual picture of physical care for the pastor who does the hard work, laboring in his spiritual duties. Therefore, the precept of helping with an enemy's donkey, which is under a burden, must carry similar New Testament connotation of helping the enemy himself. Jesus uses a simple parable to show us this truth. Here are Jesus' words from Luke 10. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Everybody knows this parable. If you've never heard it, it's wonderful, but I'm sure you've all heard it a million times. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will come again, and I will repay you. The law said to help an enemy whose animal lay under a burden. Jesus explained that not only should we directly help our enemies, but he included the words, he set him on his own animal. It is not just that we are to relieve the burdens of our enemy's animal, but we are to accept the burden of our wounded enemy upon our own animal, and then go beyond that as well with whatever help is needed. Justice, justice, you shall do. Again, the Geneva Bible gives a short, clear comment. They say, if God commands us to help our enemy's donkey under his burden, will he suffer us to cast down our brethren with heavy burdens? Obviously, the answer is no. Be kind to someone that I don't like. Why would I do such a thing? Last year, that guy stole my bike and gave my own girlfriend a wedding ring. Should I be nice to the person who always berates me? Should I be the one to always turn the other cheek? Look at my bruises. Count all you can see. People beat me up for being gentle and meek. Oh, but if I can win some to the Lord through a calm and gentle attitude, it is better than them dying by his sword and being cast into the fiery infinitude. Help me in this, Lord. It's contrary to all I know, but I can do it with your spirit. Surely this I know. Our third thought today is I will not justify the wicked. Verses six through nine. Verse 6, you shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. Again, this is a clear and concise statement. However, for a fuller understanding of what is being said, it's important to note that a different word is used here for poor than in verse 3. There it was the word dull. Here it is the word evion. This is the first time it's used in the Bible, and it means needy. Verse 3 focused not on showing favoritism to the poor. Being poor can be a relative thing, though. 
We have poor in America that have cars, cell phones, cable TV, and the like. We also have the needy in America. They are lacking those things, and they are lacking the basics too. To pervert the judgment of the needy seems like a minor thing, but it is truly kicking one when they're down. It is both cruel and inhumane. The law forbade this. Unfortunately, Israel failed to conduct themselves in the manner prescribed here. One example is found in Jeremiah chapter 5. It says, they have grown fat. They are sleek. Yes, they surpass the deeds of the wicked. They do not plead the cause, the cause of the fatherless, yet they prosper. And the right of the needy, they do not defend. Verse 7, keep yourself far from a false matter. This verse appears similar to verse 1, but that was dealing with receiving and passing on false testimony as a witness. This verse is dealing with receiving false testimony for judgment. The judge is never to pervert justice by receiving a false matter. If he does, it could mean life or death. Verse 7 continues, do not kill the innocent and righteous. When false testimony is received and knowingly acted on, it may result in the death of the innocent and righteous. If this were to happen, it would be a case of judicial murder. As the judge is the law of the land, then their judgment will be handled elsewhere. Verse 7 going on, for I will not justify the wicked. These words are interpreted in two ways. The first is that the Lord promises that he will not justify the judge himself who had been commanded to not act in this contrary manner. And yet he has done so by rendering a false sentence against the innocent. As terrible as this crime is to be considered, it's not one which has been overlooked or ignored in human history. Far too often judges are willing to overlook the value of human life for whatever gain they believe they will obtain. And I would specifically bring up the crime of abortion because that is a judicial mandate of our system. It was judicially enacted and the judges are the ones that will be held accountable for this. That's all there is to it. Abortion has killed over 50 million people since Roe versus Wade came into effect. That is more than every war of all of human history combined. 50 million souls by an act of judicial murder. That's all there is to it. Anybody that can't see that is deluded. They're blind and they need to reconsider where they stand in relation to their God. But the Lord has promised to not overlook their offenses. I'll tell you that. The second way this is viewed is that it means to be cautious of inflicting capital punishment on one whose guilt was not clearly proved. A doubtful case was rather to be left to God himself who would not justify the wicked. In other words, this is a provision that may be handled within the laws of Israel. The judge can't decide, and so he has the option of going to God himself. Although this is a minority view, it is possible because the, the judge does have the option of going to the priests to determine guilt. Such a case is found in 1 Samuel chapter 14 in a dispute about who was guilty of violating an oath. King Saul was determined to have the offender killed and consulted the lots to determine who it was. Verse 8, and you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning and it perverts the words of the righteous. The shohad, or bribe, is mentioned for the first two times here in this one Bible verse. It can mean a gift or a reward, but implies a bribe or a means of obtaining favor. The Old Testament is rife with examples of bribes being used to pervert justice. And it is one of the singular reasons for the destruction of Jerusalem and the captivity of the people. Here's what it says in the book of Micah. Now hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and pervert all equity, 
who build up Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with iniquity. Sounds like America today, doesn't it? Her heads judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for pay and her prophets divine for money. Yes, they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Sadly, if the Lord were to look upon our nation and judge us in equal measure, there would be little left when he is done. Our political leaders have gotten fat off of bribes, either directly or through campaign money, and have completely perverted the justice of the people. Uncontrolled power, wanton avarice, and evermore ill-gotten money are the very foundation of our political system. With the introduction of the false global warming movement, it has now moved into a united effort of the world leaders to corrupt justice for all of the masses. It will only continue to get worse as the world moves closer and closer to the tribulation period. Verse 9, also you shall not oppress a stranger. This verse is very similar to Exodus 22, verse 21, where it says, You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. The word for oppress is lachatz, which means to distress. It comes from a word which signifies pressure. Because this section is speaking of justice and judicial righteousness, it is referring less to physical abuse than to societal abuses on foreigners, especially in legal matters. This seems evident from our final words of the day. Verse 9 finishes with, For you know the heart of a stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. For you know the heart of a stranger. The people of Israel were physically mistreated, but that was only a part of their oppression. They were also stripped of their justice, something that would have struck them not on their backs, but in their hearts. Their time in Egypt was to be used as a point of reference for their conduct towards the strangers among them. Denying the stranger, meaning a foreigner among them, was so much on the mind of the Lord that he had it included in the verbal pronouncements of the curses against the people in Deuteronomy 27. To deny the stranger justice was, and therefore still is, something that is on the Lord's mind. To take advantage of a foreigner because they are a foreigner is to incur the wrath of God. This does not mean that foreigners are to be exempt from the laws which have been set up in the land. Unfortunately, we've taken this to the exact opposite extreme in this nation. Rather, this is speaking of their treatment and their rights within those laws. And in a comparable spiritual manner, we can look at Paul's words in the book of Ephesians to see that we have a dual duty in this regard. Yes, we are to treat the non-citizen strangers among us rightly, but how much more should we treat the spiritual strangers properly as well? Paul says that before coming to Christ, we Gentiles were also strangers, but we are now citizens. Here's what he says in Ephesians. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It is now incumbent on us to render the same level of justice to those who are still strangers from the covenant of promise. The law in its entirety is given to show us deeper spiritual truths. As we walk among those who are not in Christ, let us remember to be ready to accept them into these great covenant promises that we now enjoy. 
justice, justice, you shall do. Let us not deprive them of the justice that God has handed out to the nations through the giving of his son. Let me give you some verses to think on and to remember so that when you come across a foreigner to the faith, you will know how to tell them about their ticket to heavenly citizenship. I'll give you four. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Everybody needs to know this in order to be saved. The wages of sin is death. We die because of sin. Everybody needs to know that in order to be saved. There's a disconnect between us and God, which goes right back to the very beginning. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. And then that marvelous word, but, only three letters, but God sent his own son into the world. He sent his son, but God loves us enough. I am misquoting this verse completely, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I knew it'd come out eventually. Christ died for us while we were sinners. And everybody needs to know that in order to be saved. And then the final verse I want you to remember, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you can just remember those and not forget them like I just did, you will be able to tell people what they need to know in order to be saved that Jesus Christ came to undo what we have fouled up so badly. All right? If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, please remember those verses. Take them to heart and call on him today. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time of God's favor. Our closing verse comes from James 2, 1 through 4. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a man, poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? It goes right back to the law. The law is set aside in Christ, but there are precepts that we can still apply and we can say this is morally right to do. Justice, justice, you shall do. Next week is Exodus 23. It's verses 10 through 19. Wonderful pictures of Christ. These verses tell. It's entitled Set Times and Feasts for Israel. That'll be our 63rd Exodus sermon. And I'll tell you this, that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Our poem today is called Justice, Justice, You Shall Do. You shall not circulate a false report. Do not put in with the wicked your hand to be an unrighteous witness, either in or out of court. This is what to you I do command. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn after, aside after many to pervert justice. No, to another justice you shall not dilute. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute as if his name were considered of less repute. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. I am showing you the good and honest way. If you see the donkey of one who you he does disdain, Lying under its burden, this to you I submit. And if you would help from, from helping it refrain, you shall surely help him with it. You shall not pervert the judgment, such as in a lawsuit, of your poor in his dispute. Keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the righteous and innocent. 
for I will not justify the wicked, never, in such a contrary incident. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. For justice you shall always be yearning. Also you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger. This is so, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Their oppression from you I will not accept. Now you know. Justice, justice, we shall do, for this is how God would have us so act, to be like him, merciful and true, to never state what is false, but only speak what is fact. In this we will be pleasing in his sight, and follow the path of our Lord Jesus, who never strayed from doing what is right, and who through his death has justified us. For this we praise you, our King of glory, for you have written our names in your gospel story. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, Thank you for these words of edification. Even if they're part of a, a law which seems almost archaic, they are not. They're a part of what you would consider as right for the people of the world. And in turning from them, the only people that we inevitably harm are ourselves and those who are persecuted under those laws or the, the fail, failure to adhere to those laws. We have so many people in this country that have never been given the chance to even have their first breath of life. They've been denied that. We have people that are, are greedy and avarice, that are just always wanting more, that are just harming the rights of the people because of their own set agendas. And the perverse attitude has just filtered down to almost every person in this country. And we would ask that Christians would evaluate themselves, that, that they would look at themselves and say, am I doing justice? Am I doing what is right? And to have a change of heart towards those things. And in some measure, we're all guilty of that, God. I know I certainly am. But I would ask that you would just remind me, justice, justice, you shall do, Charlie, as I go about my life and I come across something that I realize I probably shouldn't do. Remind me of those words and remind each of us of those words. Help us to be honorable and honest in how we deal with others and how we cast our votes and how we uh, make the decisions that we make that will affect others. Everything that we do, help us to do that, Lord. And of course, we do pray for the people that are not here today. Vic, who is traveling, we pray for Jim and Linda who are going through such, such a difficult week. We would pray for them and for anybody else that isn't here as well. And for the family of James Carpenter who died and who they desperately need to come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We would pray that maybe that would happen during this time of sadness. And Lord, just be exalted in how we conduct our lives in the hours and days ahead. And we look forward to the day when you come and get us out of here so that we will stand in pure righteousness and in pure, the presence of pure justice. Everything will be just perfect when that comes. Until then, just help us to live this life properly. We love you and we praise you and we exalt you. In Jesus' name, amen. We get our instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And uh, there we hear these words from the hand of Paul. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And he would have given thanks over this bread. He would have said these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzilechem min ha'aretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, 
He also took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam porei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, the creator of the fruit, the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. 
Before I close this in prayer, uh, if you haven't seen, we got a lot of pies back there. Bread puddings and just apple pie. And Bob went out to the German place on Siesta Key and bought one of those apple pies. And so uh, make sure he gets to take at least an extra piece home because I know what they cost. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to come here and to fellowship. And I personally am so, so grateful for the people that attend here. It is just like a family. It is so wonderful to share in this church with people that are loving you, that love your word, that are willing to put up with all of my faults and failures and my eccentricities. Lord, you are so good to me, and I don't understand why, but I return it to you in thanks and praise. And I know I do so for the people in this church as well, who love you desperately and just anticipate that glorious day when the shofar blows and when we're all translated to your heavenly kingdom. What a great day that will be. Until then, we commit the rest of our day and the week ahead to you, hoping that it will be this week. And if not, we'll be here hopefully again next week to meet as a family. We love you, and we praise you, and we exalt you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.